0: Many of us recognize independence as a value. We teach our children to tie their own shoes. We encourage our teens to think for themselves and not just go along with whatever their peers are doing, saying, or thinking. And we spend a lot of time working to achieve the kind of skills and knowledge that we need to be self-sufficient, independently functioning adults. But it's often said or implied that independence is impossible. That in a complex division of labor society like the one we live in today, we depend on others to make our shoes, build the roads we drive on, generate the electricity that powers our our lives, lights our homes, and so on, and much more. Moreover, they point out that other people raised us, like our parents raised us when we were helpless, uh, educated us when we were ignorant, uh, and built all the things around us that make our alleged independent achievements possible. None of us is independent, we're all interdependent, the story goes. But is it true that we're all interdependent, or is there something wrong with thinking of ourselves in this way? And what exactly is independence? And what would it mean to be independent while living in a complex, interconnected society like like the one we live in? So welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Aaron Smith, I'm a fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute and with me today is ARI senior fellow, Ankar Ghatay. Welcome Ankar.
1: Hi Aaron, good to be here. Let's start off. If if someone knows something about Ayn Rand, I think what they will know is that she's a champion of individualism and of independence. Her first best-selling novel, The Fountainhead, is a celebration of independence, a celebration of the individual. I mean, the title is the individual, I mean, the meaning of the title is the individual the fountainhead of human achievement, of human progress. And on the other side, on the flip side, I think people will know she was critical, like highly critical of the collectivism. The Fountainhead was written in 1943. So of the collectivism then sweeping the globe, whether you look at Soviet Russia, um, and she had first-hand experience with the rise of communism in Soviet Russia or Nazi Germany, um, so it's coming out during World War II, or America under the New Deal, which gave sweeping new powers to the federal government in the US. She was critical of all this development, and she was critical of the you could put it the moral collectivism that underlied or underpinned these political developments. The the kind of demands that we all have faith, that we all have to submit to a higher authority, whether it's it's the communist government or whether it's Hitler in Nazi Germany, we submit to a higher authority. And the champion or the extolling of service and obedience as the highest moral callings in life she, so she she opposed all of that and she championed independence and individualism and as a champion of individualism of independence she of course was familiar i mean she got this kind of objection often that individualism is impossible independence is a myth that we're all in it together that we're all tied together we're all interdependent. So I think a good thing to start with is, how does she analyze and respond to this kind of objection when it was made directly to her?
0: Yeah, And here in this context, I think you, you mentioned The Fountainhead, in, uh, which was published in 1943. And uh, I found a letter that Ayn Rand had written to a guy named DeWitt Emery uh, in 1943. So this is a little bit after the publication of uh, The Fountainhead. And uh, Emery was uh, a conservative. conservative. He was the president of the National Small Businessmen's Association. And he had written a letter to Ayn Rand. We'll put a link to the letter in the show notes. But he wrote a letter to Ayn Rand in which she asks her whether she believes in, quote, absolute individualism, disregarding the interdependence, which is a necessary part of any capitalist or industrial society. So he's saying you're an advocate of absolute individualism, what about the interdependence, you know, that's uh, kind of a built-in part of our complex society? And so Ayn Rand responds, I'll read a bit from the letter. She says, quote, of course I believe in absolute individualism. Yes, I mean laissez-faire. I don't see any kind of, quote, interdependence in a capitalist society. Everything a man gets is paid for by his own labor he trades his products for the products of others to the extent he has earned and no more. A man who, fe- I like this, is a man who feeds himself by his own labor is not a dependent. Traders are not dependents. If the word means that I, for instance, depend on the farmer for my bread, while he depends on me for his books, that's nonsense. He does not give me the bread free and I do not give him my book free. I don't help him grow wheat, and he does not help me write a book. He depends on nothing but his own work and ability, and I, and so do I. Then we exchange our products through voluntary action to mutual advantage if we both want the exchange. Where the hell is the interdependence? Now, of course, in a communist society, I would be given a bread ration, and I'd gobble it up because I'd have nothing else. And the farmer would have my novel rammed down his throat, if Elmer Davis liked it, he, uh, Elmer Davis was, uh, I think, the head at some point of the War Office of Information under FDR. Anyway, continuing the quote, she says, then, of course, if the Cambodians need milk, we've got to all rush out and sacrifice and get milked. We're all interdependent. That, my dear conservative president of the National Small Businessmen's Association, is what the word was pushed into use for. Uh, so end quote there. Uh, that's from the letter. And there are several elements here. I mean, one element is what the term interdependence has been sort of pushed into service for. Um, but wh- one, the, the thing I want to point to uh, is that Rand emphatically rejects the idea that someone who supports himself by his own productive effort, engaging in voluntary trade and so on, that that, that, that kind of person is a dependent, certainly not in a moral sense. So uh, in a socioeconomic, I mean, this is one of the things I think this brings out, is that in a socioeconomic context, independence is a matter of living by the work of your mind, as she puts it, uh, engaging in productive work and earning by your own thought and effort, the value equivalent of what you need uh, so that you can then trade the the, you know, the results of your efforts with the results of the efforts of others. Um, I mean, this is, the kind, this is the life of a life-supporting producer, not that of a dependent. So she really rejects that notion that this is uh, any kind of a dependency is involved. Uh, I mean, the, the dependent person uh, would be the kind of person who mooches from others or loots from them, in effect, uh, what he needs rather than production and trade. Um, so that, I mean, that's a, like, a major thing that I think comes out in, in the way she thinks about that. Because if, if I had been asked that, it's like, well, are we all interdependent because of uh, the way in which we interact in a complex society? I think I would have said something like, well, there's a sense in which we are and a sense in which we aren't and, and try to clarify. But she completely, unequivocally rejects that. Um, but I find that interesting the way she thinks.
1: Yes, and, and I think it's characteristic of her way of thinking that she's very careful with the concepts that she uses, that the precision in the language, but here crucially in the very concept that, re, that you're using, is important for clarity and for reaching truth. And she's also very sensitive to um, that it like she's on the lookout I don't mean sensitive in an emotional sense she's on the lookout for when new terms are being introduced and why they're being introduced so the interdependence sort of is is, is a I think partly what it is it's a, tr- a way to try to mitigate dependence if 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 you said we're all dependent that people would more like what do you mean exactly but if you say we're all interdependent it seems oh you know maybe that's and and but she knows that the work being done is by dependence, and so to say we're all dependents, whether you we add what's well, interdependent or not, it, it, it's this vision, a dependent, like you think when you get these um, survey, I mean the forms from a medical office or insurance thing okay, list your dependents. And when you list, you're listing the people who can't survive on their own. You're listing your kids, an eight-year-old, a five-year-old, who cannot survive on their own. They can't function as an adult. And so they depend on you. They depend on you for care and so, and direction. And there's a projection of, well, we're all always in that state when we, you say we're all interdependent, and we're not. I mean, part of the part of what you brought up that anybody in America knows is that part of the progress from, or progression from childhood to adulthood is precisely to want to become an independently functioning individual. You're no longer dependent on your parents or anybody else. You now can make your own way in the world. Um, And that in 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 a practical sense that, and this is the trade issue that you can produce enough that you can live, trade with other people and live on your own. You don't need, you're not asking for an allowance from your parents and things like that. So just in the, on the existential sense of um, yeah, you're now at a, a, a productive functioning adult who can live by themselves, which means create the values that you need to live. And the deeper issue I think, and that she's certainly if you look at the fountainhead in, in and, and that's part of the context for this letter, and it even comes up in in part of what you didn't quote in the letter the fountainhead, there, the issue of dependence and independence isn't only um, the issue sort of of economic independence or material independence. It's that the root of independence is, are you an independent thinker? And this is the issue of, Do you go by faith? Do you go by authority? Do you obey in an intellectual sense, what others tell you you should think, what others tell you you should value, or do you work and put in the intellectual work? So there's an issue of existential work to produce values to sustain your life, but do you engage in the intellectual work to form ideas and convictions that you, in a first-handed way, have evidence and reasons to think are true? Or do you just take over the ideas that everybody else seems to say are the correct ideas? And that, if we think in that terms, is dependence inevitable? No, you can be an independent individual. And what the Fountainhead really celebrates is you should be an independent individual.
0: Yeah, and there there seems to be a, uh, a conception of what independence Is that kind of driving this idea that well we're all interdependent and we can't be independent? But if you ask them, well, what do you mean independent? What would it be to be independent to someone who advocates that sort of view? And it seems to be implicitly, at least, the idea that well you're sort of severed from community, you're cut off as if you're living you know like a castaway and you're like you don't rely on anybody else you don't purchase things from others you don't use achievements others have built and that's and but if you ask them is that what you think independence amounts to um i mean that that goes back to the study about, about being metaphysical it's like can you actually be independent and if that if the answer is you, you live as a castaway then yeah that's not appealing number one uh, i think you could live like that it wouldn't be very good but um But that's why I think it's, I mean, it's important to contrast uh, interconnectedness with interdependence. Um, And this isn't just semantic, I think. I mean, interconnectedness just the word. I mean, stress is connection. Uh, We're all connected in various ways. We're connected socially, economically, politically, and so on. Um, But connectedness or connection doesn't necessarily entail dependence. It's a kind of a relation, but it's not dependence necessarily. Uh, but interdependence really does stress the issue of dependence It stresses the idea that in one way or another individuals can't exist or function or live without depending on others without being a dependent in some way on other people Uh, and I think here uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is something that's often cited as a major example of of not just our interconnectedness but our deep kind of interdependence Um, and What do you have to say about that what do you think about this the pandemic as this here's a model example for how interdependent we are and proof in effect yeah
1: this was all over discussion and analysis of the covid pandemic when it was happening and it here having the these two concepts and keeping them separate of there's an interconnection and, and interdependence that they're not the same thing the pandemic certainly showed how interconnected the modern global economy is. I mean, so when people talk about globalization and as a new phenomenon in sort of the second part of the 20th century and into the 21st century, what globalization means is how interconnected the economies of various nations are I mean if you just look in your house of the products you have you have stuff from Chile, Peru, China, Taiwan, India, Vietnam from all over the world you have and this like if you go back 50 75 years it's much less than it is now that you have products that from around the globe and so are you inter are you connected to people um, through trade and production from for thousands and thousands of miles away, yes, you are. And the pandemic part of what happened is, yeah, in terms of supply, change, supply chains and the production of goods, that they happen all across the globe. And if there's disruption to that, because there's this kind of connection, it's like a link in a chain being severed, and it has ramifications. And you can see that in a small way, um for just the global economy right now, for instance, there's, there's been uh, I mean, one, one analyst put it as erratic weather in many of the rice growing regions of the globe. And so there's worries about rice shortage. The price of rice has gone up. India is even saying they're not going to export rice. They're the major exporter of rice, I think 40% of global exports. Um, And like, that's There's a weather happening in a distant part of the globe, and that can affect the price of rice that you're paying at the supermarket. That's an example of how interconnected the global economy is. But it's very different from saying that what we have is a kind of dependence. And when the pandemic hit, part of what it is, is, yeah, there's this interconnection, supply chains are being disrupted. But the only reason it can can come to seem like, oh, look how dependent we are is because of what the government did or governments really across the globe. But if we if we just concentrate on the Western world, what they outlawed in effect is independent individual action. And then if you say, well, look, people are functioning independently. They're not, uh, can't function as individuals. Yeah, you've outlawed their ability to function independently as individuals. So when you issue a lockdown that nobody can go out and work, can go out and produce and figure out new ways of trading. So you've got a disruption in the economy. And so how do you adjust? And what normally happens in a free market is you have thousands and thousands of individual actors making individual choices and adjustments the price of rice is going up maybe I'll eat more pasta so and I mean there's a or we'll start yeah. growing rice because it's the crop the crop is more attractive but there's like thousands and thousands of choices that happen um, and when a government issues a lockdown and says everybody has to stay in your home and you can't produce you can't trade then all of a sudden people found like that's a threat to my livelihood and literally for many people it was like they don't have that many assets they uh, i mean take the kind of living paycheck to paycheck and all of a sudden like the government says you can't earn a paycheck and now that they feel out of control and dependent on government yeah because you've made them dependent and and like the stimulus money i mean so-called stimulus money and so on, handed out during the pandemic it's like yeah we're all dependent on the government now for handouts. But that it, that's not a feature of the modern global economy. It was an aspect of the government outlining the ability to produce and the ability to trade. And I mean, there's much more one could say about the pandemic in regard to this, but I, I think that is the essential, that it's the government pr- prohibited us from acting independently and in an individual way, trying to figure out like, What's the best thing to do for my own life? It, does it really make sense for me to shelter in place in my home for months and months and months? Can I survive that way? Am I really at risk? So, And it said, no, you, you're not allowed to make any decision or choices in regard to that. We decide if you're coming out or not and who's an essential worker and who's still allowed to work and who's not. So it became that we were dependent on government, but that's not the... the essence of human life, it's rather interference with human life and our ability to live and prosper.
0: So Let me ask just a follow-up on that. Um, what do you think of the objection that, uh, yeah, so there's a, like, globalization, the interconnectedness that we get through a, a globalized economy, uh, and we can point to all sorts of values of that. Like like you said, there are products from all over the world in, in my place and so on um what do you think of the objection that yeah but that doesn't that make us more vulnerable and then to the extent that we're uh we sort of rely on uh the availability in effect um and often ready and quick easy availability of these kinds of things we sort of adjust our life to a certain kind of pace and expectations and then when those sort of networks break down um we just were more vulnerable what do you think of that objection?
1: yeah i think it's exactly
0: the reverse Again, if you're talking about
1: free individuals, and it's one of the reasons globalization as countries become more free, and part of what happened say in Asia is countries in comparison to 75 years ago or more free, are, are more free, and so became part of the global economy. The biggest and most obvious example is China, though it's nowhere close to a free country in comparison to what it was, 50 or 60 years ago, particularly economically, there's more, at least de facto, freedom in China, and it's why it has become a global uh, player in uh, production and trade. It makes us less um, uh, vulnerable because the more you have this kind of division of labor, the more adjustments and reorientation is possible. So, to take just this example of rice, if your only source of rice is what's grown in California. If California has a drought, that's the end of it. Like You don't have any more rice. When it's global rice production, if there's a drought in California, there might be a bumper crop in India. And part of what happens is then, yeah, you start exporting from India and people start buying from India. And so this, this incredible division of labor makes the global economy, if it's allowed and freed to function, makes you much more less vulnerable to a drought, to an earthquake, to some kind of disruption, or even just like a fire at a plant. Um, it, you can quickly readjust. It's all, and what happened in the pandemic is the government's prohibited, like legally prohibited that from happening um, across the globe. And so, yeah, you can have disruptions in supply chains, but they are adjust, They get adjusted and they get adjusted. This is part of what the prices do. It's the shift in prices. Think like if the price of rice starts going up, people realize, oh, okay, yeah, maybe I should substitute for certain areas of cooking and so on, not use rice, but also people start growing rice. That's what happens. But if you have a lockdown and everybody said, oh, nothing of that can happen. And so it makes it, or oh, the global economy makes us vulnerable no it's that is not true it's but it's again the government action makes us vulnerable but even there the, like the more global it is if one if one government decides to do a lockdown global the supply chain and so on can adjust if they all do lockdowns um then you've
0: got a big problem yeah, and and speaking of lockdowns um and in the context of this notion that we're all interdependent Uh, In the context of the pandemic, uh, California's uh, Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, he issued a stay-at-home order, a shelter-in-place, I guess as it was called, order to um, all California state residents, so it's like 40 million people. And the language uh, that he used when he was sort of issuing this order and explaining what he was going to be doing, uh, I think is revealing. He says, uh, and I'll I'll quote from uh, his his, uh, address, he says, quote, A state as large as ours, a nation state, is many parts, but at the end of the day, we're one body. There's a mutuality and there's a recognition of our interdependence that requires of this moment that we direct a statewide order for people to stay at home. Uh, Close quote. Uh, And I think the body part analogies are not accidental. I mean, The message is that we're all one collective whole, like a body. Uh, And the uh, the quote, interdependent parts are like kind of hands or feet and they have their role to play. I mean, the part of a hand or a foot is to play a certain kind of role uh, in the functioning of the whole organism, not to be independent actors doing whatever they feel like doing. Um, And so I think there's there's often a metaphysical perspective being communicated or conveyed um, by the notion, the concept of interdependence when you're talking about people. And the way that's conveyed through these kind of analogies about the whole and part and so on. And I think that metaphysical perspective is often used to justify uh, thinking of individuals as dependent parts that are made to serve the collective. So I think it's really um, one of the real concerns about thinking, it's not just insulting to think of yourself as, oh, I'm just a dependent, we're all dependents. Uh, It's more that there's a kind of a, there's there's that metaphysical perspective that's being pushed in order to justify collectivism. Uh, I think that's how it's often used. I think Iran thought that's also how it was used because she said, you know, in that letter, I didn't quote this part to DeWitt Emery. She says, uh, she says, uh, uh, that word was being put into use a few years ago by the pinks, you know, the kind of not card carrying communists, but like sympathizers, uh, people sympathetic to communism and so on uh, to push precisely this sort of view.
1: Yes, and and it, these analogies to it's like one big organism, um, and you're a part, like a hand or a foot or a cell in the organism. They go long a long way back, as you know, if, 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 from the history of philosophy and the history of intellectual thought. And yeah, it's a it's a metaphysical perspective in the sense that it says like the basic nature of reality and and man's place in reality is we're like this interchangeable cell in a bigger organism. And the, the kind of point of reference, the primary unit that you have to be focused on is the whole organism and what are its needs, what are its wants, um, what are its requirements? And the whether it's treated as it's the nation state, it's society, it's the common good this, this that's the perspective from a in a metaphysical way of collectivism that we're not actually independent entities we're just parts of a larger organism and again and that the primary focus then has to be on that larger organism and everything else is subordinate to it and the individualist perspective is well first that that is false that it's false that it, that metaphysical perspective that the collectivist um, viewpoint relies on is false. That it is not true that we're like a cell in a larger organism. There is a point of talking about society, about a nation, about the rise and fall of nations of whole cultures. There is that perspective, but it's a derivative perspective. A nation is a um a collection of individuals who've decided to form a government who've decided to have a system of law and that then there's a complex interconnection of the individuals in a nation but the primary is the individual and the individual's functioning the individual's decisions and choices society doesn't choose a nation doesn't choose only an individual human being with an individual mind can exercise reason, can think or not, can make choices and can guide his life. He can choose to become dependent on other people. He can choose to follow people unthinkingly, to believe whatever they believe, but he can choose not to do so. And so the, the root of individualism is a metaphysical perspective that a human being is an individual entity who functions by his own effort own choices, own thinking, including like lack of thinking or rational or irrational thinking, um, and then his own actions. He's not a cell in a larger organism. And so, so at root of individualism versus collectivism is a real, deep philosophical issue, a metaphysical issue, and part of Iran's rebellion against collectivism uh, is that she thinks the metaphysics of collectivism is false and and false at root and not like close to the truth, but gets something a little off. And so it's just fundamentally mistaken. And then going back to that letter, when she hears interdependence, what I think part of what she's hearing is, this is the metaphysics of collectivism. And I reject that completely. And so she's adamant in regard to this.
0: And she's she wrote about that the the metaphysics of collectivism and I mean my the f- f- thing that first pops into my mind is Anthem, you know this whole idea that uh, you know there's there is no I there's only the we and so on and that the, the individual is in effect uh, an illusion or a part or a fragment and only has value insofar as he, he serves the community and the whole and so on. Um, and you were saying and, and, that this and Anthem- uh, or, or,
1: and in Anthem, there's kind of a projection, as you say, they, like that's a good thing to bring up. And this perspective, there's no I, there's only we. So it's like the we does the thinking, and the we does the act. Like everybody together does the thinking. And part of the story of Anthem is, yeah, and so no thinking goes on, because thinking is an individual activity, it is an independent action. The only thinking we see is someone who escapes from the society and is able to carve out some time and space for himself. And and this is a part of like, it's an illusion to think um, a group thinks.
0: Yeah, and you were saying that this this perspective, that uh, this kind of collectivist metaphysics, if you want to put it that way, this notion that you're just a part or fragment of some larger whole, I mean, it goes, I think it goes back to uh, a religion and, and also, but philosophy and religion is their sort of blending. So uh, I know the Stoic philosophers have this view explicitly. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll read a, a short quote, I think, from Epictetus. Yeah, this is uh, in the discourses. Um, and I think it captures this really well. Uh, this whole perspective, how to think of the individual's relationship to the whole, which is just, I think it, it is the metaphysics underlying collectivism. Uh, he says, consider who you are. You are a citizen of the world and a part of it. So what is the job of a citizen? Never to act in his own interest, but to behave as a hand or foot would if it had reason and was able to understand the natural order of things. It would never have inclinations or desires except by reference to the whole. Hence, if a truly good person were to foresee the future, he wouldn't resist even illness, death or mutilation because he'd realize that this is what he has been allotted at the behest of the universe, and that the whole is more important than the part, the city, than the citizen. I mean, I mean, it's just explicit. You're just a part, you're a fragment, and they really believed it. I mean, you that the cosmos as a whole is a living organ, literally a living organism, you know, insoled, if you want to put it that way, by, by God's divine agency and so on. It were like really pieces or fragments of that. Even your mind was supposed to be parts of God's mind. And so they really took that view seriously. But I mean, I think also, there's a sense in which you get that coming out of the Christian tradition as well as the, in the sense in which you're just heavily dependent on God and he sort of set things up.
1: Um, yeah, the, the, I think the Christianity cements this home in the Western mind that it, the idea that we're, I mean, it really is God alone is the independent entity. He's eternal has always existed or self-created. He's not created by anything, but everything else emanates from him, um, is created and sustained by him. So there's a deep element of metaphysical dependence that it's you continuously in every um, uh, creation. So every creature, that doesn't just mean living things, it means the earth, the moon, the solar system, everything is continuously dependent on God for its existence, That that's part of the picture, and it's really stressed how everything is dependent, and independence then is seen as the, I think it's, it's the evil, it's the rebellion against the evil, Actual metaphysical nature of reality and its independence. To take the story of Adam and Eve, it's the the sin is that they want knowledge, and part of what knowledge. When we talk about it in a human form, knowledge is what gives you the and and what's behind it. The thinking required to reach knowledge is what makes you an individual. An entity capable of independent existence everybody believes this but i know i think it's wrong and i'm i think this and i'm going to do something different than everybody else does it's the and it's it's like adam's rebellion from which original sin then comes. it's a defiance of god but it's a defiance in the sense of i want an individual independent existence i want to know not just to be told what i'm supposed to think what i'm supposed to say i mean it's adam and eve it's so that, the, see it as a rebellion. It's um, like what they want is knowledge, to taste from the tree of knowledge, to label that a sin, and to take seriously that for centuries that's viewed as a sin, that original sin makes sense, that we're being punished, and we're being punished generations and generations down from this of people who even didn't make this choice are being punished. It's, it, it's viewed as this is the sin. sin. And it is putting it in philosophical terms, it's that independence is evil. Dependence is good. You are metaphysically dependent. And morally, you should recognize that fact and submit and obey God, whatever he says, whatever he commands. Um, you're just to follow orders. And the Adam and Eve story is, no, we don't want to do that. And... Um, you're cast out because of that and the I think you can't understand the secular forms of dependence and how common it is to say we're all dependent or all interdependent and so on, without understanding the religious roots and particularly the way in which this saturated the western mind
0: yeah and people think of uh, these secularizations of Well, no, let me rephrase that. The fact that this religious perspective of man's relationship to God or to others just saturates the culture, even though people, even among atheists, I mean, people that don't, you know, wouldn't explicitly accept that. Um, But they would accept a secular version of it, you know, where it's the sort of society. It's like, I mean, if you just switch out God for society... It's more plausible to people today to think yeah yeah i mean society is the whole of which we're a part, and we depend on society and it's and being connected with it in various kinds of ways um and that just sounds more plausible to them but i mean i think the way ayn rand thought about it was it's still a mystical perspective because it's not like i mean you can acknowledge the existence of society the importance of society for sure uh, and social institutions but there is a way in which they're sort of reifying society they're treating it as if it were a kind of mystic super organism. And I think that, again, this comes out in that quote from Gavin Newsom. Uh, and it's, a, it's, you know, we're, look, we're part of the whole, we're in the same boat, right? Outside the boat is just the ocean where you die. And it's like we're all part of one thing. And we, uh, one guy's got to do the row the oars and the other guy's got to tug the sails and somebody's got to run around giving people water. And it's a kind of like we're one organism that has to function in this sort of way. We can't go, we can't go it alone. And what's the go it alone? I mean, it doesn't literally mean leave society and you know live alone on a deserted island. It means function by your own independent judgment uh, and live not as a dependent, but as a free thinking, free acting producer. And I think that's the, where the animus is directed. Um, yeah, and, and the part of the evidence that
1: it, when it's secularized, it's just accepted <laughs> as, yeah, that's sort of common sense is, when Newsom, and it's not like this is the only quote one can find of yeah. a politician saying this. When Newsom says this, everybody like it's treated as yeah, that's sort of a bromide. Everybody knows this, so, um, and really, as you said, all it's doing is substituting the nation state for God, like a religious um, leader would have put it. We're all dependent on God, and and we're one body to the, under Christ. Da, da, da. And here it's just, it's a substitutes the nation state. And then people think, oh yeah, I guess. Um, and the reason or, or a major reason people think of it as, um, yeah, I guess that's just common sense, is it's just a secularization of the religious viewpoint. And Newsom's making that point in the context, if you think of what actually happened during the pandemic, um, to the extent that we were able to cope with this new virus, it was because of the independent individual actions of various people. From There were fairly early on people about how to, how to sequence this virus, how to develop a vaccine, how to develop tests. And the government, particularly for testing, prohibited people from acting, te- I mean, particularly in the U.S., Testing was such a disaster for months and months and months. You couldn't test if you've got COVID or not, even though individuals knew how to test, how to develop tests. But the FDA and more broadly the government took control and said, "No, we're not going to permit these to g- get to market and for people to use them and for people to experiment to figure out like, which are the most effective tests and under what conditions they." Um, but our the development of the very vaccine is it was individual scientists and researchers, the mRNA vaccines. It was a minority, I mean, a pretty small minority viewpoint at the start that thought, like, this is a promising technology, a new kind of platform for developing vaccines. There was a lot of skepticism, even within the kind of scientific medical community. And the pioneers persevered in regard to this. And so we were able to get um, vaccines. It was individual companies producing them um at scale and so on all of this was possible it's not because we're one body all functioning together and so it was through independent individual action and even on like the small scale of say i mean everyone was familiar i think with restaurants pivoting and how do i okay we can't have that we can't gather in the restaurant how do i stay alive how do i still um uh trade with customers and so on and th- there was all kinds of innovation in regard to that and it's again it's yeah. individual restaurant owners um and drive of uber and so on it's a lot of thinking that but it's individual independent yeah, and it's more like you have to all.
0: work around the government to be able to engage yeah in that kind around of activity. Activity. yeah yeah because i know in, in like you're in california in my neck of the woods out here in southern california um restaurants were either some restaurants would simply close and and, uh, their employees were just out of work, Uh, but others simply defied the order and they said we're going to just stay open, you know. Come and get me if you want and, but then other places um, they would uh, you couldn't you couldn't gather inside so you couldn't be inside uh, the restaurant. So some restaurants modified their kind of upper the kind of walls near the roof, so that it was sort of open air like partly open air. So they could technically be, we we're not technically inside and some places would convert areas of their parking lot uh, into outdoor seating. And they would, just, they, but a lot of that was just like, well, what do we do? Do we just sit on our hands and wait till Governor Newsom says we can operate again? Or do we just sort of innovate and we try to move around that? But it's, yeah, like, like you said, it's the independent action, the independent thinking, the independent functioning that sort of helped get us out of this. It wasn't, it wasn't the government. Um, so we talked about a bit about the sort of, the sense in which that's kind of collectivist metaphysics it's coming from religion i mean one of the um one of the perspectives that where this is coming from the more secular side uh which is also i think metaphysical uh is that we hear that man is a social animal that's another one that comes up all the time uh and that, that the intention is metaphysical like this is just what you are like from the religious perspective is what you are as a creature where that's a technical term that you're a created being uh, you are you are a creature and God created you and you have a place in this. Um, but there's a sense in which this man is a social animal. That's a metaphysical perspective. You're, and and partly what they mean by that is you depend for your survival on bonds of social support, on interrelations with other people. Um, and then that very quickly moves to the claim uh, that the individual should serve the collective on which his life depends right? because that's what's more important. That's what he depends on. And so that has to take priority. Um, and Ayn Rand had... I mean, I know it had some things to say about this idea of a man being a social animal or a social being, uh, I think, are worth bringing up. Yeah,
1: here's two of the crucial quotes in regard to this. The first is from Atlas Shrugged. This is, uh, it's in part three of Atlas Shrugged, the first chapter. It's Hugh Axton speaking, um, who's one of the um, protagonists. Uh, he's a, I mean, a relatively minor protagonist in the story, but he has an important role in the story. And he puts it this way. Man is a social being, but not in the way the looters preach. Uh, close quote. But again, man is a social being, but not in the way the looters preach. And what the looters preach is the kind of collectivism that were all the, the parts of a greater whole that's the primary it's some you're part of some kind of organism or it's viewed as you're part of a hive so that I mean again throughout the history of thought the example of ants and bees as that's what a social animal is that's a particular kind of animal that it, it you can think of various ants or bees the, the, the worker bees got an assigned role so on there's the queen it has a different role and it's all laid out. So that is not at all what man is. Uh, and so another quote, that now here, it's outside of the novels. And the way that she puts it is, this is from an article called A Nation's Unity. And she Ayn Rand puts it this way, quote, man is not a lone wolf. And he is not a social animal. He is a contractual animal, close quote. And what a contractual animal brings up is he's a living entity who possesses free will, who can make choices, And, and the deepest element of making choices is he can think. He can choose to think, he can choose to question, he can form new ideas, new convictions, and as a result of that, figure out new ways of acting in the world. He's capable of knowledge and production, and then trade. But all those depend on a, a individual exercising thought, choice, control over his life. And man is a contractual animal because he's an animal that has free will, has the power of choice, and an animal like that then can. Um, uh engage in communication conversation agreement disagreement you can reach uh, a mutually beneficial agreement or you can fail to and go and choose to go your separate ways that and that's what should happen that's part of what a contract is like we willingly get together we choose to get together because we think this exchange is to mutual benefit that's what we're, we're talking about as a contract so there's an element to say that um, he's not a lone wolf. He, man prospers in a society of a certain type, of a, in a free society or a capitalist society is the Ayn Rand's view. And she has lengthy arguments for why that's so. So she doesn't think, yeah, what would be good is if we all lived on self-sustaining, by ourselves on self-sustaining farms. No, that would be a miserable form of existence in comparison to what, human beings are capable of but nor do we want to be like a beehive or a a ant farm um that every your, your place is assigned whether it's assigned by the king um or by a pope your place is assigned and you're to live out a plan that someone else supposedly has come up with and so that is all that is false so it's a society in which you can um voluntarily uh transact and associate with people or not if you don't if you don't think it is actually to your own interest and like that's it's it's such a different picture than when people think well okay if he's not a lone wolf he must be like a bee or an ant and that's just a false alternative
0: and i want to in that connection i want to ask a follow-up question to you uh and this is coming from uh andrew so thank you for the super chat andrew Uh, so uh, you were, you were just saying something about, uh, um, you know, that your, your role isn't to sort of live out some plan that's set by others. And that's what justifies your existence and so on. And the question we got from Andrew was, can you elaborate on the meaning of man is an end in himself? I mean, I take it essentially that the idea is that life uh, for an individual organism, its own life is an end in itself. It's not, you pursue your life. You, um sustain your life so that you can reach some other goal that's either set by someone else or so that you can play a part, you know, in a wider plan, that that's not what justifies your life. Life justifies itself in effect, that you don't need some outside justification to uh, pursue and sustain and live your life. That is the end. It's an end in itself. It's an end all by itself. Um, It's not an end that's also a means to some further end and so on. That's how I take it. And, and, the, and a crucial aspect
1: here in the, in the context of what we're talking about is man here means the individual. It's not man, the species, and his end in himself. It's you as an individual or an end in yourself. And it comes from the metaphysical perspective that the life is an individual life. Um, you're not a cell of part of a larger organism. You are the organism. And so values, needs... So, pertain to you as an individual living thing. And the, the the root of values is the fact that you're alive and require certain goals to be reached, that you have to achieve these things in order to remain a living entity. And so it's an end in itself. And this is part of the attraction, metaphysically, of portraying it as well, you're like it's it's you're like your cells of a larger organism. I think it's it's um, it's not coincidental at all that they put it as an organism because that brings in oh so it's if it if if it's society or the nation or the proletariat or whatever if viewed as a kind of organism, then you can think of. The real needs and the real values and pertain to the organism and its society as a whole. It's the common good. That's what the real, when we're talking about what's good and bad or good and evil, we have to look at it. what's the, the living thing. And it's the, this collect so allegedly collective um, uh, and mystical organism. Yeah, that's what is the real unit and what we can talk about values, needs, and so on. And to reject that is to say, no. It's the individual human being who has values, needs, and so on. He's not a cell in a larger organism. So, the, like that, when she puts it as an end in itself, and the individualism, it's man as an individual, is an end in himself.
0: So, I want to ask another question, uh, and I mean, I'll I'll take a stab at it as well. But we got this sent in on the Q and A, Zoom Q and A. And the question is, uh, that in the letter to DeWitt Emery that that I read parts of, uh, doesn't Ayn Rand conflate dependence with interdependence? Uh, And the questioner goes on. I think this is an elaboration of this. He says, he or she, I don't know who said it then, said, no one is completely independent. Oh, shoot, I just lost it. Um, Here we go. no one is completely independent. You might need an allowance from your parents, uh, but if you, sorry, you might you might need an allowance from your parents, but if you fall on hardship, you might need a loan. Certainly you always need and depend on their love and moral support. Rand didn't make it to the US without monetary support, assistance from her family and so on. So there's a, there's a question about what does it mean to be truly independent or fully independent? And does that imply that, one never accepts help from other people. Um, and I think in, in Rand's perspective, if you think about independence, there are all sorts of ways in which you could be dependent or independent. But in a moral perspective, um, she puts independence as it's accepting, accepting the responsibility for forming your own judgments and living by uh, the work of your own mind. So it's about being a productive individual, so being self-supporting. And uh, it's about thinking for yourself. So that's it. when we talk about think about independence as a moral virtue. Um, that's what it means. It does not mean that you never you ex- never accept or you shun help from others. You don't um, build on or um, uh, make use of in some way assistance from others. There's no. I don't think there's any implication that well, if Ayn Rand accepted if her mom helped her, for example, her mother actually did help her get uh, a visa to get out of Russia. Um, uh, I mean, if she didn't accept that, I think she'd wind up having to live a life of a dependent, frankly, <laughs> live is thing in the Soviet Union. I mean, but what she had to do was think of like, I need to get out. What do I need to do? Should I accept the help? Should I stay in Russia? I mean, think about the, the questions that she would have had to ask herself. Well, my parents are here, and they might need my help. Maybe I should just stay around. Maybe I should stick around. My life will suck. But, um, you know, maybe I should just help out my family and just sort of, you know, soldier on and, you know, but I think it was an act of independence to say, no, I'm going to go to a new country. I barely speak any English and I'm going to, as a young girl, a young woman, uh, go out there and start to build a new life, uh, and support myself, which is what she did. So I don't think that challenges the notion of independence, unless you think about independence as you, you just sever yourself from other people and don't learn anything from them. You know, you just take the issue of like learning. When you're young and ignorant, you know, you go to school or your parents teach you things and you learn from others. But that's not a process by which other people pour things into your brain and then now you know and understand. You don't the only way you can know and understand and the way, only way your knowledge grows, the only way you can learn is if you yourself make the effort to think, to process what you're being told, actually and to question it. And to try to validate it for yourself and figure out is this knowledge or is this just stuff that I'm told and then I'm parroting and stuff. So I mean the whole process of engaging and the process of learning is an independent process, independent from a psychological perspective. You have to first, you have to deal with the material firsthand and you only know what you know, what you yourself know and understand, not just what I I was told this sort of stuff, and I can repeat it. So the process of learning is like that. And parental help, for sure. I mean, if your parents aren't monsters, I mean they help you when you're helpless and uh, raise you and so on but that's just a biological fact I mean human beings just if you just take a baby and just put it in the woods it's gonna die um, that's just a biological fact but you don't want to stay in that condition you want to get to a point where you can you're self-sufficient intellectually you're you know you can um, think for yourself you can rely on your own judgments where you can be self-sufficient um, uh, materially uh, in that case I just mean able to produce the value equivalent of what you need so you can actually get the material values you need to support your life so you don't have to just constantly rely on other people to support you like a life support system um you know yeah. so that that's a little bit about the can you truly be independent but uh, the the question if the part of the question was doesn't Ayn Rand conflate dependence and independence i don't know if you want to say something about that
1: We really touched on this in the podcast, in the sense that earlier on in the podcast, in the sense that it's um, what I said, which I think is part of what is going on in the use of the term interdependence. The inter is trying to camouflage or hide the significance of the dependence. So if if you say, "Look, you're like a child dependent on others," And then, well, no, there's something wrong with that. Okay, well, it's interdependent. You depend on them, they depend on you. It, um, but th- that's not true. And so, the crucial issue is, I don't think she's conflating these. The crucial issue is it's not true that you're dependent on others when you trade with them, when you learn from them, um, when you, uh, if you're actually a person who produces things and so produces what you trade, it's a real trade then you're both functioning independently. You're both producing the values that you need to live. Um, And you exchange because it's even more helpful to do that, but you wouldn't need the other person. And even in some of the examples, the one thing I would add to what you said, uh, Aaron, is often help just means a form of trade. So if I help a friend, it's not, well, he, all of a sudden, now he's dependent on me. Part of the friendship is an exchange of values that, and that I care about the person's life and what is happening. And if he needs help moving, it's not, oh, now he's dependent on me. And lo and behold, he'd be out on the street if I didn't help him move. No, it might be harder for him to move. He might have to pay a mover to do it and so on. But I've it, it, to say that you help them is not, they're dependent on you. It's a form of exchange. And that's true of love. Um, And moral support and so on. There's such an thing as exchange of spiritual values, a trade of spiritual values. Ayn Rand really stressed this Particularly in Atlas Shrugged that a part of viewing a proper human life is to think of trade and exchange of values in a much wider sense than just material or economic commercial values that are exchanged. And if you think of friendships romantic relationships, love relationships, in that context, then they're very different than like one person's dependent on the other. And that's recognized in a common sense kind of way that people think of it, it's a def, it's a dysfunctional relationship when one person seems to be dependent on the other. It's all give it's all one from way. one person, take from the other person. Um, and there are relationships like that, but they're not good, and it's recognized that like something's going wrong here because both people aren't profiting. No.
0: And I want to say add one more thing before we kind of close it up and get to the outro and so on. But um, so we focused a lot on uh, the metaphysical aspect of interdependence and what we think is misguided about that or wrong. Um, I want to say a word about the moral aspect of this. Is that one of the functions, uh, results at least, but I think one of the functions and purposes of uh, thinking of us as we're all interdependent, it's, you know, there's no self-made man, there's no such thing as a self-made individual. And so you don't get the moral credit for your own independent achievement. Oh, independent. There's no such thing as an independent achievement. We're all mutually interdependent. And, you know, so whatever you achieved while you had to rely on other people teaching you and somebody built the roads and so on. Uh, I mean, you get this from the the kind of, you didn't build that sort of mentality. The idea is, yeah. And so now you don't get to keep that, you know, like the state then has a a stake and well, part of it, you can't, you can't say it belongs to you. Well, maybe some of it belongs to you. You can keep a chunk of it, you know, but not the whole thing because it's obviously not entirely your, uh, achievement. And so, so there's an issue of, I think, uh, wanting to not allow people to keep the products of their own independent efforts by trying to train them to think of themselves as well you're not really independent so it's not all yours um i think that's operative as well
1: yeah that, that's an important point point. and the flip side or not the flip side the sort of the complement to it or the corollary of it is so it is so what you're stressing which is important to stress that it is a way of tearing down the achievements of people who actually acted independently um, and reached actual knowledge or actual values, actually achieved and produced something. And the kind of corollary is it gives an excuse for people who didn't do that, so of the person who actually achieved something, you it will be, well, you didn't build that. That's a product of society. And who knows who contributed to this and so on. Don't take credit for this. And the fl- other side is, I couldn't help it. It was like, I'm a victim of society. It was the collective, it was the-, the It's Reardon and Lee Hunsacker.
0: It's like Reardon and- so I, did, and, I and, didn't hear uh, what you said there. It's like Reardon and uh, Lee Hunsaker, you know, in the Atlas Shrugged. You know, I never had a chance. Uh, you know, yeah. when it comes to Reardon, it's like he, you know, he's a multi-millionaire uh, industrialist and, and, you know, the people who resent his achievement. It's like, well, he didn't invent a blast furnace. Uh, he didn't invent metallurgy. You know, it's it's the same kind of thing. Like, he can't claim it as yeah. his achievement because of, in some sense is building on knowledge from other people. But n- unless it's like, yeah, but didn't, but he did it. <laughs> so, um, all right, let, let, me, no, let me give it, some reason. There's no oh, achievement no, go ahead. and there's go ahead. no failure.
1: I was just going to say, if there's no achievements, yeah. indiv- then there's no individual failures, and that's yeah. part of the, that's the of the directionality,
0: yeah, uh, of the issue too. Um, okay, so let me let me just put forward some of the put out there some of the resources I'd like to suggest. Uh, one, obviously, is the Fountainhead. I mean, this is the place where Ayn Rand discusses in most uh, detail the issue of what independence means and what it amounts to, and what dependence in many of its forms look like. Uh, so that's the central uh, place to look. Um, and also the the letter um, that I read from to DeWitt Emery by Ayn Rand, it's available on the ARI archives page. And it's also in the book, uh, the, what is it? I don't have the letters book, but the letters of Ayn Rand book. Um, and also one more thing I want to point to is, uh, so Harry Binswanger did a podcast on a similar topic and it was called, how can one be fully independent in today's society with, which is worth watching that is uh, on YouTube on our, ari channel um so let me say something about next week's show um you can join uh, ben bayer and Nikos satyrakopoulos next week for a discussion of a new book by matt Zwolinski and john tomasi called the individualists radicals reactionaries and the struggle for the soul of libertarianism so you can join them next week uh, and as always please send us your questions for future q a episodes if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to our channel on YouTube and click the bell to get notifications for when we go live or have something new to put out. Uh, if you're watching the recording, please like, comment, or share the episode to attract new viewers and consider doing the same if you're watching this on Facebook. If you have questions or comments about today's episode, or if you have que- uh, suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email at newideal@einrand.org. at aynrand.org. We do read all of your emails and we will re- 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 reply to many of them. So that's it. See you next week for a new episode. Thanks for joining me, Ankar. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.